Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode number 48 of the Lift Free and Diet Hard podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates, and I apologize that it's been a couple of weeks. I was busy presenting at a conference in Spokane, Washington, and busy schedule, and it just didn't work out to get uh, great guests on, but I've swung a great guest who I've needed to bring back for quite a while. So please welcome back Krista Scott Dixon. Uh, if you are a longtime listener, Krista has uh, been a past guest on the old format with my uh, former co-host and good friend, Dean Guido. But uh, Krista, I think you're Anybody who's familiar with you knows you're a real powerhouse in, especially the nutrition and behavioral and habit coaching side of things. Um, let me get your exact title. You are the director of curriculum at Precision Nutrition. If That's right. Yeah, you got it. Right. Uh, and you're the author of the book, Why Me Want Eat, which we're going to circle around to because we had a little fun with that on a Facebook post uh, about a week ago. But most of all, I guess, you know, the world's been through a lot since the last time we talked and you know i know that our as coaches you know our clients collectively went through more stress and more chaos than usual stress and and life happens but this is a very aggregate scale like another level of stuff so i guess this is a broad question but you know how have you approached navigating this with your own clients personally and also you work with a lot of coaches, you're an educator. So how have you allowed that to trickle down through the coaches that you influence and work with to help their clients? You know, I think the biggest piece is just really recognizing, and this is such a cliche to use the word unprecedented, right? But I think this is such an opportunity for us to really apply that client-centered approach and a lens of, of just like absolute radical compassion to the situation because so many things just got thrown out the window, whether it was daily routines, whether it was secure employment, whether it was personal security, whether it was our own health, whether it was the health of our family members, you know, um, and even stuff like, okay, you kept, let's say you kept your job, but now you're working at home and maybe you're homeschooling, like just so many things radically changed for people, including like, you know, tangibly, but also existentially, right? People's sense of stability. And so, you know, for coaches and clients alike, I think it's such an opportunity to offer that radical compassion and just say like, look, everything's been thrown out the window. If you manage to maintain your daily practices, good for you. Um, doesn't make you a better or worse person. If everything you did just slid into the ocean, that's okay too, right? And so like, I think, the the range of what we can demonstrate to our clients is greater. Some people thrived. Some people, you know, had great, like the proverbial come to Jesus moments about their career, about their life, about their situation. <laughs> Maybe they lost their job, started their own business. You know, like there was such a huge spectrum of responses. And I think as coaches, sort of making space for that is really important. So to tell people, look, if, if, if you sat on your couch for eight months, hey, that's a trauma response and that's okay. You know, where can we start you with? Um, or hey, if you took this moment to radically invent yourself and, and recreate a new career, a new body, whatever, good for you. So, you know, really just normalizing that there was a wide range of responses and experiences here. And like, for me, that's the number one message. Whatever you did is okay. So don't get obsessed with social media, with that person who did whatever it is that you think you're supposed to be doing. Just recognize that what you've gone through is really uh, unprecedented in most of our lives. And so like whatever showed up for you is okay. And how can we work from here now that we're coming out of it? You know, I've drawn back to something that John Berardi said on a podcast 
years ago that really stuck with me and I'll sort of apply it was this idea of people learn skill sets and they learn habits and behaviors. And certainly for often younger people with less complex lives, they learn these brute force ways of dealing with nutrition and exercise. And they don't necessarily serve them later on when life gets different, when there's kids, when there's a career, there's more complexity. So with the fundamental shifts of a lot of people's lives, I suppose you could look at it this way, that a lot of people learned a set of skills for the life that was. You imagine someone who, let's say office worker, who now is, has gone remote working and that's going to become far more prevalent. You have to, at a certain point, be able to unlearn some of the skills that you've entrenched and learn a whole new array of skills. Yes, absolutely. And not only that, take on a whole new set of identities, right? Maybe you went from employed to unemployed. Maybe you went from employed to unemployed to having your own business. You know, maybe you went from working part-time to full-time or vice versa. So along with the skills, which I think is absolutely crucial, right? How do you manage your time when you're homeschooling? How do you like do all of these things? How do you, I mean, I had to completely rebuild a home workout routine. And so I had to learn new skills uh, like actual physical skills, like swimming and kayaking and like all this kind of stuff. So um, yeah, you have to learn new skills. And I think just explaining that to clients is a huge relief. Like, of course it feels weird and different because I mean, if you've ever had the experience of being an accomplished athlete in one area and then trying a completely different sport, like all of a sudden you're an idiot, you're an uncoordinated fumbling idiot in this new sport. And it's very confusing for a lot of people like, oh my God, I'm a great athlete. And especially some things like jujitsu in particular, or like anything that's very sort of technically complex, all of a sudden you're flailing like a moron and you're like, you don't understand what's going on. Right. So I think just normalizing that for people that you are experiencing the flail (laughs) because these are radically new skills and you're taking on some new identities. You're, you're going from, you know, again, worker to homeschooler or employed to unemployed or whatever it is. And identity shifts are really profound and they sneak up on you, right? Like you just feel vaguely destabilized. You don't really know what's going on. It's just, that it's almost like all of your, your metaphorical clothing of life doesn't fit anymore, but you haven't yet gotten new ones. And so everything is like itchy and constrictive and, you know, you don't really know what to do with it. So I think skills and identity and a sense of purpose and meaning too, like, like the, your, your, a lot of people's North star changed. And I think a lot of people, you know, for example, economically, we got a window into a lot of economic workings that I think a lot of us don't necessarily want. Like we kind of opened the, opened the hood of civilization and gazed inside and we're like, I don't like what I'm seeing here. So there's even like, um, almost if I can call it like a spiritual or philosophical reinvention that has to happen. Like when you, <laughs> you know, when you, when you kind of look at things, it's like, whoa, I thought things were this way. Now I see they're that way. And I need to rethink a sense of purpose or what things mean or, or my own values. So, um, you know, for instance, a lot of people started spending more time with their families for better, or for worse. <laughs> Maybe you wanted to stab your family at the end of it. Maybe you loved your family more at the end of it. You know, there was, there was like a lot of layers there. But maybe you realized after a year and a half of this, I don't want to go back to that corporate job that I had. I no longer define myself or are driven by that ambition, by that status or whatever it is I was driven by. I want a completely different life. And so that's a huge shift too. And so like you're just taking on all these new things. And yeah, exactly. All of them require 
new skills for managing, coping, and dealing with it. And we're all going to feel like flailing idiots during the transition period. I want to galvanize the first point you made with, uh, you know, I always think of Michael Jordan. So, you know, I, maybe younger listeners, you know, know him as this iconic basketball player, but maybe they forgot that two years at the prime of his career after he'd won multiple championships and it just looked effortless for Michael. Michael may very well be the most effortless, you know, skilled, dominant player in basketball, but possibly any sport. And he went and decided, well, let's go try baseball. I played college baseball and flailing and he wasn't successful, you know, and I admire him for taking a shot, came back to basketball after two years and completely dominated again. Perfect example. And what you just described reminds me of some of my experience when everything, you know, got shut down or whatever, I created a home gym. So that way I was able to, you know, stay functional. And I love aspects of that. So as the gyms reopened, I decided I was going to keep half of my work in my home studio, which I kept adding to, and half of my work would be back at Evolve. And what that let me do is instead of being gone for 11, 12 hours of the day, you know, I'm gone for maybe six to seven total. I get to come back and hang out with my cat, Ozzy here. He's just laying down next to me right now. And I realized I enjoyed the greater balance between time in my home. So you couldn't get me to go back, you know, to do 10, 11 hour days in this gym. And I find I'm actually recharged more. So there's a very specific example of what you just said. And I think there's a third thing that I wanted to jump in there too, because you give me all these great ideas. You look at the world like being confronted with some of the, the things that we dealt with. There's a lot of stuff there. But if anybody pays attention, like world supply chain and all this, one ship gets stuck in a canal somewhere and it completely screws everything up. And they're going to be taking, dealing with this for at least a couple of years, trying to catch up with this. That is how vulnerable we kind of are as a society. That's just one example of all the stuff that happened. And that could be very existentially threatening to someone on top of the imminent stuff going on in your life. And I think it's certainly very overwhelming. So it goes back to your original point that honestly doing the best you can through all this stuff is more than good enough. Absolutely. And I think embedded in what you're saying too, like, I mean, it's, it's easy to focus on the challenges and there were certainly plenty uh, or traumas even. I mean, it really, you know, for some people, it just went all the way to the, the that polar end of, of trauma. But as much as a cliche as it is, there's humongous opportunities as well. And even just to use the example of, of where and how we worked out, so in the beginning, I was I was lost and stuck and very um, grumpy and frustrated. And I, and I felt stuck in my I mean, I, I live in a one bedroom apartment. OK, so and there was one day when I was trying to get a home workout and it was raining, so I couldn't go outside. And I was like, OK, I'm just going to work out inside. And then right at my window, there was a team of window washers appeared. And I was like, my God, I'm not even safe in my own home. Right? Like I have a whole spectator gallery of people at my window now. And I just, I went and I cried because I was like, I felt so trapped and so stuck. And that was early on when I didn't have a, a roster of activities. Um, and so, but the opportunity was, okay, you know what? It rains in Vancouver, Canada, where I live. Uh, I guess I'll just buy rain gear. I guess I'll just find things to do when it rains. Oh, you know what? I discovered I had a basement that I could work out in. Um, and so even things like, or going to the pool, you know, I can kind of swim, but not well. The pools are closed or they're like COVID crockpots. So I'm like, all right, I guess I have to learn to swim in the ocean, which is a totally different ball game. So I was like, I guess I'm going to get a wetsuit. So like there's, but, but there's all these opportunities there for, new skill mastery and reinventing ourselves. And 
I don't want to um, oversell this because I think some people are like, oh, this is a magical growth opportunity. Growth sucks when you're in it. It involves a lot of pain and frustration and anxiety and, and screwing up and false starts. Um, but you know, as we're coming out of this, we can help our clients attend to all of those opportunities, all of that clean slating that is possible. Like, okay, you know what? The old world has just burned down. And I, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, I wish we could go back to normal. Honey, we're not going back to normal. There is no previous normal that we enjoyed. I mean, we can go back to similar looking things and routines, but the world is not the same anymore. And it's never going to be the same. And this is just how the passage of time works, really, right? And I think, you know, a lot of clients have, they, they want to hang on to the past. Oh, I was an athlete in college, or I used to weigh this much, or I used to do things in my 20s, and now I'm 40, and I can't. And I think as much as possible as coaches, you know, part of our role is to help clients track with reality, and track with evolution and track with the passage of time so that they're able to face reality as it unfolds in the present without getting overwhelmed by it and also seeing the opportunities that are there. I mean, that's, I don't know, that's, that's what I can see as my perspective, but we're, I mean, there's no going back. So we might as well figure out how to go forward, you know? Um, I mean, this is getting kind of existential. So I hope the listeners are kind of like, Ooh, okay, cool. You know, I remember kind of thinking, okay, yeah, like I, I want the world to get back to normal the way it was, but it's like, you're right. I mean, what what version of normal is it? Like the the grunge era '90s or the, the the hairstyles and the music of the '80s, which was pretty cool, by the way. Well, that the music anyway. Or was it Cold War era '1980? Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, '70s, and all of a sudden we're looking, and it's like you go back to these periods of time, and you think, oh, things were stable and and peaceful in the grand scheme of the world. Uh, not really. You go back a little further, and you get some really nasty stuff. Now, again, broadly existential on a more micro scale, your example is perfect. I mean, I remember what it was like to be in university. I remember that. And I remember the first year I was no longer in university and how much of a shock that was to me being out in the real world. And in a lot of ways, this is really no different. There are going to be things that come and change. This is just a little bit more, I think, of a shock to people's system. I, yeah, exactly. I think it was like all of the things all at once, which is pretty overwhelming for most people. But I mean, I think if we're going to make it tangible, uh, and, and bring it into coaching and athletics. I mean, this is exactly what happens with aging or, you know, athletes in particular, I think uh, have some really difficult transitions. So if you are lucky as an athlete, you age out of your sport. So you get a nice, slow, relatively speaking ramp down, but a lot of athletes, I mean, their career ends literally in a millisecond, you know, your ACL snaps doesn't get better. That's the end of that. I just read moments ago, for anybody who's a baseball fan, there's a young player who I always thought was promising. It's a guy named Clint Frazier. He's a New York Yankees prospect. He's been talking trade rumors and finally got an opportunity, hit really well, kept getting hurt. So they're just saying they're not sure if he'll ever be able to play baseball again. I think he's 25 or 26 due to a vision issue, something related to vertigo. Can you mm. imagine dealing with that? And it goes back to identity, your identity is as an athlete. That's that right. may have been gone away, in pardon the pun, a blink of an eye. And that's just what we're talking about here. Yeah. And even just, you think, you know, we just had the Olympics and for a lot of those athletes, that's their last Olympics. Right. And so maybe they won, maybe they even won the gold medal. Okay. Now what, now what do you do with yourself? Right. And so 
and I, so there's there's really all like transitions are inevitable, whether pandemic induced or not. And certainly in terms of fitness and health, uh, you know, maybe you benched 350 at one point in your life. That's not going to continue forever, nor are you going to be that interested in it forever. Right. For a lot of people, you know, their interests change, their sports change, their hobbies change, their physical capacity, but just the, the kinds of questions that they're interested in answering with their bodies changes. That's the kind of place I'm at. I'm like, I'm just interested in different questions <laughs> or, or, or ways of expressing physicality in the world with my body. This is very normal and natural. It's just, again, the, the transition spaces can be painful and difficult, but we know that elite athletes in particular struggle a lot with their mental and emotional health um, oh, during and after their competitive careers. That was on display at the Olympics. Oh yeah, but it never has been in the forefront that in that way before with Simone Biles and mm -hmm. um, God, I, I apologize, I can't remember the young athlete's name, the sprinter, um, uh, Shakari Richardson. Yes. Right, and you know they are just two prominent examples, um, and I believe the young tennis player is it Osaka? Yeah, Naomi Osaka. Mm -hmm. So, all, all parts of that conversation. Uh, there's more complex stuff going on there, obviously. And I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But yeah, for the first time ever, this sort of stuff was put on display. And there's conversations about, at the very least, we don't understand the pressures that these athletes are under. And this is a unique time even for going to the Olympics. Um, there's a young woman who was nearly dragged onto a plane to go back to Belarus. Mm -hmm. Complex stuff there. This, this, this is a very unique Olympics. Mm -hmm. But before I get sidetracked on political stuff, how do we take this existential stuff into our coaches and navigate this with our clients? Yeah, it's a great question. And it, I think, it, you know, so there's kind of, there's almost like a background piece, right? So as coaches, we're going into our client sessions with like a mental frame or like a mental stance, like how am I going to show up to this interaction, right? There, there are certain tools that I bring into every interaction. A commitment to active listening, for example commitment to compassion and empathy and really trying to like get their perspective, um, a, a commitment to aligning with their goals and their objectives, right? Really trying to understand what it is they're seeking, how we can get them there, uh, a skills-based perspective, right? How, how can I give them the ability to get where they want to go? So there's certain tools that we always bring uh, into our, our coaching sessions. And this is really just one more tool, which is understanding how change works, how transition works. And, you know, I think a lot of coaches are hesitant to bring their own experiences in. And I've heard a lot of coaches say, well, I feel like I have to hide this thing that I went through or the fact that I'm not perfect. I still struggle with X, Y, and Z. And I think it's really important to destigmatize whatever X, Y, and Z is for you. And to understand that that is something you can bring into your coaching sessions to deepen the empathy that you have for your client. And, you know, you can, I mean, you can coach clients that are much like you, you know, maybe you're, you're someone who has had several kids and you're coaching new parents and you're like, yeah, I got this. I've had five kids. I know how this works. Or you might be coaching people completely unlike you. Um, and, you know, and that's just going to happen. But in all of the cases, you bring this insight about what it's like to struggle, what it's like to suffer, what it's like to feel dumb, what it's like to feel frustrated. And so, you know, in terms of, what you would bring into your coaching sessions, a lot of it is about your mindset about how change works, how coaching works, and how stress activates people's brains in a particular way. 
you know, so some people, especially high performance athletes, they love stress. They chew it up. It's like a vitamin for them. You know, they're at their best when the pressure is the worst. The vast majority of people past a certain point, stress is not helpful to them, right? It, it shuts them down, especially considering all the other stressors in their life, right? And so in, in coaching, one of the things we have to think about is what is the total load of stressors in this person's life? So if I think about like a mixer board, right? With different knobs and dials and fiddly things and sliders, like where can I slide things without collapsing the system? So I think as coaches, we really have to understand how stress works as a, a broad phenomenon in people's lives and understand where can I push? Where do I need to back off? Where do I need to scale it back? You know, you might have a client who normally comes in and they're doing, I don't know, hundred pounds of something, but the total load of other stressors in their life today means that a formerly easy hundred pounds of something has to be a 60 pounder today. And to be able to flow with that and roll with that and understand it's not your client sucking or being unmotivated or being lazy. This is a neurological, physiological, psychological response to all of the other stressors in their lives. So sometimes your role as a coach is to push, <laughs> but during a time like this, sometimes your goal as a coach may be to amplify recovery modalities in people's lives, building them to be more resilient, more robust, more um, stress tolerant, helping them bend rather than break. So, and I think, you know, at the, again, the extreme end of things, I mean, people talk about being trauma informed to really respect the role that trauma plays in people's lives, whether that's the pandemic or whether that's something else that they've been through. What you just described is something I dealt with today. One of my clients, a lot of anybody who follows my Instagram is probably familiar with my client, Larry. Larry just turned 71. He's sweet, strong as hell, but um, he just had a, a loss of a very close lifelong long friend that he's, he's grieving. So he, you know, showed up for the workout, you know, cause he felt that was important. He would feel better. And, you know, we just had a quick conversation. He realized that I was very attuned to this. I dialed back some of the intensity today because, you know, that's been very taxing on his, you know, his system, his stress levels, his soul. So we just want to make sure he felt really good in this workout. It wasn't going to be a progressive workout for him. And he left feeling better, certainly. But you, yeah, exactly an example of what you just described. And I think this is a really good example, too, of understanding that a lot of these uh, responses are physiological responses that are governed by the autonomic nervous system. So this is not, you know, people, I mean, of course, people commenting on Simone Biles's, for example, uh, performance, for example, like, I mean, <laughs> anyone who's a world-class gymnast maybe gets to comment, everyone else can just shut up, right? But, you know, people don't understand that there are autonomic responses that happen under stress that are outside of our control. Now we can, we can fiddle with them a little bit through breathing and relaxation, that kind of stuff. But a lot of them are outside our conscious control. And so what we're dealing with is not someone voluntarily responding a certain way. It is their body's evolutionarily conserved response to stress and trauma. And so my understanding of what happened to Simone Biles is that her, her vestibular kind of proprioception that you need to do a, I don't know, <laughs> triple half twist with a slice of lemon in midair, like that went offline. And when you are hurtling towards the floor, you kind of need that thing to be online. And you, you like, it's just, it's not an option to continue without that system and no amount of motivation or wanting it 
will make that possible for you. So I think coaches really need to grasp the idea that a lot of these responses are, are autonomic nervous system responses. And another example would be um, people who freeze up under pressure. Now we can help them cope with that, you know, over time, like let's say someone has test anxiety, you know, they freak out. We can, we can work with that. But in a situation where you're extremely stressed and traumatized, your system's going to shut down. You're going to be immobilized. And you, and so people feel guilty about that. Like what's wrong with me? How come I can't get energized? How come I can't get motivated? I should have acted in that situation. Dude, you can't. Your body pulled the kill switch and was like, mm, nope, shutting this down because this, this person needs to be immobilized right now. So I think knowing this can help coaches understand what they're seeing more in their clients and really assess it correctly. And it boils back down to what you said, radical compassion, which will be the title of this episode because it was too perfect. <laughs> right? it, it's ultimately dealing in just pure empathy for where they are. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of really great coaches who intuitively get this. I mean, I think they're the type of people who are far more likely to be following you and reading your work and reading your book or, or listening to a podcast like this. Uh, you know, occasionally there, there was an example of something just this weekend where uh, one of my posts, which was just a bunch of tactics to practical fat loss tactics, um, I guess a meme account took this and like scratched them all out and just wrote calorie deficit across the, the front of it. Now, this kind of backfired on this guy. It was really funny. It was quite a spectacle. I thought it was great. And I sort of played the high road. And I got a lot of new followers as a result of it. And some of my friends just took off Guido and like made memes about it. But it highlights the point that there are certain camps of their industry that they completely lack empathy. Mm -hmm. And they think that shouting, just get into a calorie deficit is enough. Just do progressive overload. That'll get your results. And, and that's nowhere near enough certainly not empathetic to the individual nuance of each client and meeting them where they're at versus just shouting these hollow platitudes. I, I think if that worked, I mean, the PN textbook could literally be cover, like, just, just get people into a calorie deficit for that's the entire fat loss chapter right there and then move on. Well, but yeah. I mean, then I could be an Olympic weightlifter because, you know, someone could just tell me all you need to do is get the bar from the floor to over your head. So just do it. Oh, cool. Okay. I guess I'm going to the Olympics. Right. <laughs> it's just such decontextualized like it's not wrong <laughs> it's just like one percent of one percent of what you need to know as a coach and you know and like I, maybe people listening are like oh empathy that's so fuzzy and gross and first of all I mean it's a skill that you have to master as a coach but even if you just want to keep it in the realm of technical skills as a skills coach if you're like if the only tool in your toolbox is saying pull the bar or to over your head like you're a crappy coach, even for just teaching skills, right? You have to understand there's, there's dozens, if not a hundred skills, like sub skills that you have to learn in order to be able to do that. So like, even if it's in the zone of practicality, just saying, oh, just put the bar over your head. I mean, or that's like a track coach, like just run faster or like a hockey coach. Okay. Just get the puck in the net. Cool. Now we can all go home and all of us are gold medal athletes, right? <laughs> it's ridiculous. If you, I, I love this example, take it even further. There's certain, I think a couple of basketball coaches who are fairly legendary, uh, Greg Popovich more recently, and then um, John Wooden, historically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Popovich is one of these guys where I, th I remember reading something where he's pretty much the only coach that when you account for the skill level, expectations, and all these other sort of things that consistently outperforms the kind of the team that he has on the floor. And it, 
there's a lot of talk about how he would go into great depth in, in terms of planning dinners and learning yeah. what kind of wines his individual players liked and having these really strong relationships. It shows the San Antonio yeah. Spurs are a very successful team for a very long time. And they had a lot of guys with great character. John Wooden, this was a man who literally started by showing his players how to tie their shoes and wear their socks properly so their feet wouldn't chafe and built from the ground up from all these like skills as a human. Mm-hmm. And these are guys who clearly have a handle on the empathy side of stuff instead of saying, here, listen, here's how you shoot a basketball. Yeah, I think skills as a human is a really great phrase because let's say, let's take basketball as an example, because I mean, that's a pretty, there's a pretty clear goal here, right? Put the ball in the net, done. But like, there's so much about being an athlete. Like, what is, what are all of the sub skills required to get that ball in the net? And, and some of them are tangible, but some of them are intangible, like managing my fear, managing pressure, managing, uh, you know, like, what if, like, we have a few seconds left in the game, and I'm the one that has to make that shot. I really hope that I have a whole set of mental and emotional skills, along with my technical skills. So yeah, I think skills of being human really captures it because you know if you've ever competed in elite athletics you know that technical skills are a huge part of it but past a certain point everyone is as technically skilled as you so what starts to differentiate you are those mental emotional life skills and social skills you know support teams existential skills it circles right back around to purpose because a lot of athletes kind of fizzle out because they lose their sense of purpose you know like one day they wake up and they're like why am I putting the ball in the net <laughs> like, oh, what am I even doing here I used to love this when I was a kid and now I'm maybe 24 or whatever. And I'm starting to wonder why am I putting the ball in the net and other people are making money off me? Like, what is the point of all of this? And that's when the, the fire starts to really go out for them. You can take this into a really extreme example that popped to my head when we were still in basketball. If anybody remembers Gilbert Arenas, profoundly talented basketball player, played for the Washington Bullets. And then for whatever reason was you know, brought a gun to the, the team locker room one day, was found with it. And that caused such a national headline and that was it his career was never the same and he was out of the nba going from a, an absolute all-star scorer to nothing very very quickly there's tons of examples of this i think there's a an nhl hockey player named evander kane who's got a bit of a reputation for being a hothead and a bad teammate he's now been outed by his ex-wife uh, he's dealing with bankruptcy despite all his millions but he's being she's accused him of betting on his own games and throwing games. We'll see if that's actually true. But the fact that he's got a a known history of gambling puts him in a position where, you know, he's vulnerable to this accusation. And my guess is his career is more or less over. There's a a pitcher, Trevor Bauer in baseball right now, who's facing some very serious allegations, uh, sexual abuse and assault allegations. And, you know, I admit I had been a fan of Bauer up to this point. And I am watching this scenario unfold to see what the hell is going on with it. But you know, his baseball career is probably over and there's some really serious stuff here. And you got to wonder what the hell's going on with these guys. And they're, you know, again, the, the, the human skills. Yes. Right? They're all extraordinarily talented athletes, but each of their careers is, is over for reasons outside of their, their technical skills in the sport. Mm-hmm, exactly. And even, even more kind of less, less flashy human skills, like can you time? Can you, can you organize yourself and show up on time? Because showing up to practice, like no one's going to be an elite athlete unless you can get yourself to show up to practice. So like t- basic, basic time management, self-organization, self-regulation. Like I, I've known jujitsu fighters who couldn't even get their act together to show up for their own matches at like national competitions. Like, <laughs> you know, 
you can't, you can't succeed if you can't just actually show up. And so, you know, and, and especially too, I think athletes as a group, you know, probably if we were to look at them on average, I would guess that many of them struggle more with kind of these basic skills, like learning skills, information processing skills. A lot of them would probably score, you know, meet clinical criteria for ADHD. These are kinetic people who often have trouble in other domains. And so they often need a little extra help. You know, like if an athlete can't read instructions well or write instructions well, comprehend instructions well, comprehend the information that the coach is giving them, like that's going to be a problem, right? So there are some very tangible skills that I've noticed that, that athletes need and struggle with. So I think we, you know, we look at athletes and we're like, oh, it must be just because they're all genetically gifted superhumans. And that is true. <laughs> you know, like no one gets to elite athletics and is just like a regular schmo, but that's such a small part of the picture of what actually helps people succeed. And if I think about regular clients, now we're talking about regular people, some of the most successful clients I've ever had were just regular people who are really good at following instructions. That is the only thing that they were really good at. They were good at showing up and doing what was on offer, like doing the task as to the, whatever degree of competence they had. And coaches want those type of clients, but then they get in trouble when they deal with everybody else who isn't great at adherence and following instructions. There's a lot of coaches out there who give the plans. Here's the meal plan. Here's the, here's the workout program. And, you know, if you don't do this right, that's on you. You know, you need to be more disciplined, which isn't helping. That's not coaching. And, and that's not developing coaching skills. All this stuff is helping everybody else who deals with this stuff isn't easy. Yeah, exactly. I think we forget as coaches how incredibly difficult so many things are for people because who teaches you? right? Who teaches you all of these unbelievably useful skills? Like for, for many just regular clients who might be struggling with their eating, for example, one of the skills they have to learn is, is relationship skills, boundary skills, you know, saying, oh, I'm, I'm choosing to eat this. If they live with a family or something like that, I'm choosing to eat this, or here's how we're going to organize meals. Like they don't even have the basic skills to communicate with their partners and their family about what they need. That is not a nutrition problem. That is a human problem right so sometimes for coaches like we vastly overestimate how easy it is for thing for people to do things and we also forget that in our own lives we're not competent at a lot of things i remember i had a very humbling conversation i used to train back in the day was when i was a personal trainer i i was um i worked for an investment company they had their own in-house gym and so i would go in early in the morning and train all their investment bankers and one morning I was running my mouth about like, oh, people need to care about their exercise, blah, blah, blah. This was back. <laughs> this is very early in my personal training days. And one of the women looked at me and she was like, how much do you know about your finances and your investments? And I was like, hmm, that shut my mouth <laughs> because I knew <laughs> zero. <laughs> and that's a basic life skill, right? Knowing about finances is a basic life skill. So, you know, we, so if, if my client is not following a plan that I give them, that's on me in a way, because I did not pitch that plan correctly to what they're ready, willing, and able to do. Well, you just des described, um, or at least hinted at extreme ownership as a philosophy, which is one of my favorites as a coach. There's a point, there's a line you got to draw because you can't take the control of the situation so far away from the client that they have no accountability to themselves. No, great. I'm, I'm a big believer in, in diving in aggressively into the into the situation 
to, to own it to the point where if the client is struggling, I want to figure out a better way to communicate or create a different environment for that person. So that way I set them up to be successful. I want it to be collaborative in such a way that they are a participant in that process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we empower them to act on their own behalf and then, you know, we scaffold and support and facilitate all of that. But, and there's many, there's many domains in which we can work, right? Maybe it's how I'm communicating. Maybe it's what their underlying motivation is. Maybe it's a set of skills. Maybe it's their daily routine. Like there's lots of levers that we can pull. And honestly, one of the strongest levers we can pull is simply asking the client, do you want to change this right now? Which is a question that we kind of don't ask. And even if the client comes in and they're like, oh, I want to change this. You know, I like to start by working through all the reasons why they wouldn't change it. And then saying, given all of this, do you still want to change this? And sometimes clients will say, I actually don't. I like things the way they are right now. And, you know, you just saved a lot of time and effort by getting those cards on the table. And it's not that the client just leaves and like, you never see them again. Generally what happens is you agree to work on something else, right? This, so it's like, what, what's the hill we want to die on here? Oh, it's not this one. Cool. What about one over? And you just hit on something. I've had this conversation with a number of, you know, newer coaches, a lesson I learned along the way. We got to be really careful not to decide what the client's goals are for them. Yes, exactly. I, I have one client, lovely human being, was referred to me, wanted to bring her blood pressure and her blood sugar down. And I, I trained family members of hers and I knew her anyway. And so early on, she lost a little bit of weight and was enjoying the process. And she was pretty good with her consistency. And the, the health metrics went where we needed. But I always remember feeling like I was letting her down. This is many years ago because I wasn't helping her get a bit more consistent, doing more stuff on her own or see greater weight loss progress. But she's quite happy. You know, she was able to enjoy life on her terms. She liked to travel and like to eat and, and have, you know, the drinks that she liked to have. And she was quite happy with where she was. And eventually a gym opened up right around the corner from her home. She did quite a commute to drive to me. And all of a sudden she started going on her own and she was really competent and really skilled. And she was really strong. And she did really well. And I realized, you know, there definitely was an element of me assigning wanting to do more. And I understand from coaching perspective, we want to do everything for our clients. We want to get them right. further, but she was happy. And at a certain point, and I've had this conversation with co other coaches all the time where we're frustrated because they feel like they're not helping a client. Well, is it what you want or think the client should be doing? Or is that client happy? Now we know there are times that the client's genuinely struggling and they're not making it to the goals, but a lot of times they're really enjoying the process and not everybody's a weight loss client. Even if they seem to start there on the surface, not everybody's a weight loss client. A lot of times they want to live life on their terms, feel better. And just the act of going and showing up to a workout every day and spending time with you is very fulfilling for them. And there's some coaches who do need to get their heads around the fact that, yes, you will have clients who will only want to do a certain amount of effort. They like showing up to hang out with you. They enjoy your relationship. They are very happy to pay for that relationship. And you have to put your idea of what their goal should be aside and communicate with them and see if they're happy with this whole thing. 
Yeah, I, I love that foregrounding of the relationship and really setting those expectations. And if you can just sort of set it like, you know what, Barbara's happy to just show up and hang out with me for an hour. Mm. Well, how fun is that, right? Like if I take all my other urgency for Barbara off the table, I'm like, hey, me and Barbara are going to hang for an hour. We're going to do some fun stuff, push the sled, whatever. Like now it becomes really fun for both of us. But I think there was something else in what you said I wanted to pick up on, which is having conversations with our clients about trade-offs. I think a lot of clients do not understand the trade-offs that they have to make. And so like one of the things we can do, we can be educators about compromises and trade-offs and help our clients elucidate, okay, if you know, if you can only pick between A and B, like if you want to lose, if you want to get eight-pack abs, let's say, mm. you're going to be hungry. Are you cool with that? Like you're going to be really friggin' hungry and you're going to have to organize your life in, in this kind of way. Is that where you want to be? And, and we can like, I'm, I will roll with whatever you want, but before we do that, let's understand and get super clear on the trade-offs that have to happen. And I think a lot of clients don't, especially gen pop clients do not understand what it takes to do a thing. And, and, and I don't say that in a judgy way, like, oh, they're so dumb. It's more like they just come in with a miscalibrated idea. Like, you know, you see some athlete on the cover of a magazine and you're like, oh, uh, you know, maybe I'll work out four days a week for an hour and look like that. And then when you explain to them, like, look, professional athletes train like 30 hours a week, 40 hours a week. And then they're doing, you know, basically professional athletes eat and sleep and do laundry and train and recover and sit in ice baths and do all that other stuff, right? that's their whole life. They don't have full-time jobs. They don't have kids. They don't have relationships. Like they, you know, for the most part, there is always that superstar that like does it all. But for the most part, that's what it takes to get that. Now, if you want that, I can make that happen for you, but let's have a grown-up conversation about the inputs and the outputs that you want to sign on to. If you want a daily cocktail, man, I'm all for that, but let's understand, you know, what you're trading off for it. That's all. And your example about the six pack, eight pack abs is exactly right. There's a lot of people who want to be that lean, but have no fundamental understanding of what they would have to give up to maintain it and how unrealistic it is. And there's another thought you, uh, you gave me, and I know your video is frozen, so hopefully you can still hear me here, um, is how many coaches have had clients who signed up with thinking that just by hiring the trainer was going to be grand, you know, thing that changed your lives and would result in all this transformation. And that was their big gesture. They think now they've done it when in fact, that's only the very starting point. Yeah. And I, I think, I think it's important for trainers and coaches to communicate that whatever goal you achieve, and this is where we kind of get into deep health, but whatever goal you achieve, it's important for you to understand that this goal is not going to solve whatever tension or problem brought you here. So if you want to get ultra lean, let's say, we can do that. But if you think that being lean is going to make you happy and sexy and, and attractive to whatever gender you're attracted to, um, that's not going to happen like you you sure you may be more confident you may be you know enjoy whatever but by and large the the method that you're trying to use to accomplish the feeling that you want 
is probably not going to get you the feeling you want, or it's not going to get you that feeling for very long, right? So you want to win a competition and you win the competition and good for you. And then you wake up tomorrow and you're still kind of happy. And then you wake up the next day and you're a little less happy, right? Like you're going to return to a baseline. And so we have to be very clear with our clients. You're seeking a feeling, right? And, and I tell coaches this all the time. You're not selling a workout plan. You're not selling a, a nutrition plan. You're selling a feeling. You're selling a relationship. And that's ultimately what your clients are, are there for. So if they want to feel, let's say, more confident and they never work on more confidence, it doesn't matter if they get the abs. If they haven't worked on more confident, they're not going to feel it. And, and more than that, it's going to feel even worse because now they're like, okay, I have the abs. I thought I would feel better. And now it's even worse because it's like, oh, like now the hole is even more apparent because I can't even blame it on not having abs. Right. So I it just, for coaches, it's so crucial to explain to people, like, if you want to be confident, you got to work on that now. I don't care if you're a thousand pounds or whatever, like a human, you know, bowl of jello, right? Like you need to work on that feeling in addition to the work that we're doing together. Yeah, I have nothing to add on to that. I think that's wonderful. One of the reasons why I wanted to bring you back on and, you know, I point people to you is because you have profound education and experience in these realms. Like, I want young emerging coaches to plug into your work. And one of the best resources for that are your books. So uh, I ref- alluded to this earlier. Of course, you popped it on a post about it because I shared this meme with all of these books that have all the swearing in the titles. And admittedly, it's one of my pet peeves. And I, and I love making fun of the subtle art of not giving a fuck, which I think is the, I, I, I always say this quote, it's the twilight of the self-help <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I always then back it up by saying if it gets people into reading, you know, what I think is, is better literature in that space, then guess what? It's worth it, right? It's a gateway to it. So, you know, your book is titled, let me make sure I get this right. So it's the book Why We Me Want Eat, but then it goes on to say fixing your food fucked up to <laughs> And uh, so you're, you're popped up about swearing the title and then you have an old ebook, which predates the trend. So you, you, you're clear on this one and it's called fuck calories. Right. And I, I get what it is. I mean, it's clever marketing. And I think there are lots of popular examples of mediocre literature that get propped up and sell a lot because you put swearing in the title, but let's come back to the fact that, you know, you're more than qualified. You're, you're one of the fundamental architects of everything that PN has done. You know, I know John Burr already gets, a little bit more of the fanfare, but the reality is you and Brian Simpierre probably are as, if not more instrumental in what PN has become than even John's own contributions. And not to put John, you know, take John down in any regard, but you guys are just as important to that, uh, that whole foundation. So let's, let's actually like have a little bit of fun with the book a little bit. So thoughts on the book. Uh, which one, the first one, the, the original or, well, or look- the, the, the second one? Let's go with the second one, the, the actual like the published physical book as opposed to the ebook. Yeah, yeah. So thoughts on the book. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> my goal in writing it, I mean, when I when I wrote it, I was deep in the clinical literature about disordered eating and just finding it so inaccessible. And it sort of seemed like at the time there were two, uh, like if you if you were grappling with disordered eating, there were kind of two places you could look. One was the clinical literature, which was so unbelievable believably dry and also very uh, preoccupied only with like clinical strength manifestations of disordered eating, right? Like if you were full on 
anorexic or, you know, like full on binge eating disorder or something like that to the, to the point where you would have to be potentially hospitalized. Like that's really what was covered. But then there was this whole other, like a huge percentage of people that were described as uh, eating disorder, not otherwise specified. EDNOS is the acronym. And I, I remember looking at this going, okay, if like 75% of the people that present with eating issues are EDNOS, like we need to really like rethink this classification and, and look at people's experiences. And, you know, back when I was writing it, the idea was like, oh, only certain kinds of people struggle with disordered eating, right? So to, to be anorexic, you had to be young and white and female and, you know, have this kind of family background and blah, blah, blah. And we know that's not true. Um, we know that all kinds of people are grappling with what I would call um, issues with control and restriction around eating, right? So, okay, so, so school of thought number one is clinical eating disorder literature, very dry, only concerned with clinical populations. And then the other school was like kind of the self-help genre. And I found so much of it just very like touchy-feely, some of it was very like religious, which is not my jam. And I, I just, I couldn't connect with it at all. And I was like, there's gotta be, there's gotta be people like me who, you know, have grappled with this in our own lives or seated in our clients and like want a, an accessible way of relating to it. And, and the other thing too is so much of it was so serious. It was like, oh, you have this problem. Let's work through it. I'm just like, that's not me. Like, I'm going to be joking on my deathbed. I, I'm that person that has offensive jokes about my own situation. <laughs> like whatever's, whatever's happening to me, I will find a way to make bleak humor about it. And I was like, I can't be the only person. So I was like, okay, what if I could translate all of this stuff into something that I would want to read into a way that I would want to think about it. And so that was the genesis of the book. I, in a way I was almost writing for myself but I was also writing for my clients who I had seen going through this, um, you know, just trying to make it like understandable. This is what you're going through. This is what you're experiencing. I'm communicating it to you in plain language. It's relatable. There's some humor in it. Like you're not completely fucked. Here's, here's a pathway out of it. It's very compassion based. It's very practical, which is what we try to do at Precision Nutrition. So rather than saying, you know, I don't know, giving you some spiritual quest, it's like, okay, put the book down right now and do this. And it's designed as a workbook. So it's not available electronically. It's only in print because it's designed to be written in and interacted with and drawn on. Like there's something that happens when we interact physically with a thing, like a book that changes our brains. So just scrolling past on a Kindle, it's not going to do it. You have to interact with this thing. So that was kind of how it all uh, came about, I guess. Um, going back to what you sort of initially said, I guess there's two sort of ways that I, I think you, you certainly alluded to, I just was going to put the names on them. Um, you get all the clinical stuff and then you think about everybody else who's still affected by it. It's subclinical. I like that term. And, but more so these, these severity of these quote disorders, uh, exist on a spectrum. Just not all of them are clinical, right? Yeah. So I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I think we see a lot of this sort of stuff. You know, you get the person who, I mean, most of the people we deal with, the weekend gets a little bit out of hand, right? I mean, mm. is that binge eating disorder? Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's on the spectrum of that kind of behavior without necessarily being something clinical that, you know, requires someone to be, like you said, hospitalized. So 
once I started thinking about it in that way, and instead of black and white categories, yes, you, you have an eating disorder or you don't, then that helped me a lot. Now, I think a lot of coaches are also told, hey, you're not supposed to deal with eating disorders. Okay, totally get it, you know, the serious stuff. But it doesn't mean we can't be well-educated or at least learn a lot of skills to navigate around some of this stuff. So you can recognize when you absolutely need to not, okay, I'm not stepping in this one. I need to refer this out to someone who's really qualified because this is, this is more serious. Well, that and also I think there's a couple more pieces. One is to understand that, you know, like when things get put into clinical terms, they get categorized, right? you are an anorexic. Now, first of all, people are not labels, right? But the more important thing is that disordered eating is a constellation of behaviors that I might be doing. It's like a mosaic. I might be doing any one of these at any time in any way. And, you know, if we put rules on it, like, oh, only this can be that, right? Only this can be disordered eating. It, it effectively erases the experience of a ton of people. And, you know, most coaches that I've ever met are deep in their own unacknowledged disordered eating or like in the process of recovery or struggling with it. And so like one of the populations that I started working with was males, young males who were in weight class sports, especially fighting like boxing and MMA and that kind of stuff. And, and who were very puzzled because it's like, oh, I got to age, I don't know, 21 being a perfectly normal eater. And then I started weight cutting for fights. And now I'm doing bizarre things like driving around at three in the morning, looking for a two pound bag of cashews, which is one story I heard once, you know, like I think it, it tries to make behavior visible. And it kind of, it's, this kind of circles back around to what we were talking about in the beginning of the conversation, which is helping people notice their experiences and validate those experiences. Like, oh, you're doing this. Oh, well, you know, that is a thing. Like you're not a weirdo. It's not incomprehensible. And here's what's happening to you, right? So you're not broken. You're not weird. We have a course um, in our Precision Nutrition Academy on specifically on appetite and hunger. And, and we have, you know, some wonderful PhDs involved, specifically Dr. Alex Schwartz, who was a specialist in, like he was a former heavyweight athlete and he was a specialist in appetite and hunger. And, you know, we know that when we restrict energy and particular nutrients, especially carbs, um, you know, people's mission control in their brain is like, uh-oh, <laughs> like, well, I need to fix this situation. And so then people have weird food cravings, weird food behaviors, and, and so on. So I think one of the most distressing things for people is feeling like, I don't know what's happening to me. I feel like a weirdo. I feel broken. I don't know why I'm doing this. I can't stop it. I feel, you know, um, I feel alienated from myself. I feel very confused. And so the book really tries to normalize, you know, I mean, there's a jokey list, like what whack shit are you doing, right? And here's 20 whack shit things you could be doing. But when you fill up that list, you're like, well, if someone else has named this, then I can't be the only person on the planet doing this. And maybe it's not insane. You know, maybe there's some other reason that this is happening to me. So I think it also kind of democratizes the field of, of, of behaviors that could be occurring for people. People are going to have to dive in and go get your book to, to learn more. Agreed 100%. <laughs> about to step in the door so i don't have any more time to talk but this is always wonderful. I, I will definitely be circling back around and have you back again tell people where to find you uh yeah do a search of my name you'll find me on facebook you'll find me on instagram as at stumptuous stumptuous.com is my website it hasn't been updated that much but you know precision nutrition.com there's lots of free articles that i've authored or co-authored so 
Yeah, Krista Scott Dixon is an unusual enough name that if you search for me, you probably won't find anybody else, except for the race car driver, Scott Dixon, but he is an imposter. So Krista Scott Dixon is a full, the full search term. I used to work with a Scott Dixon too, out of all oh. on elsewhere. So, but yeah, so guys, please go check out Krista's stuff. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate you showing up every week. I would, I get some, some, hopefully some new guests coming up in the near future and keep on going. Life and work has been really crazy, but this is really important to me and it gives me an hour to spend with people like Krista. So um, if you're not already subscribing, maybe you found this podcast through Krista's media. You know, she did a visit uh, quite a ways back with the old format. So did Brian St. Pierre, so did John Birdie. And John doesn't do a lot of podcasts. So it was a real honor to have John on here. And if you look through the library of the people I've had, I think you'll find a lot of really great people, including our friend Logan Dubay. Anyway, thank you so much, everyone. And uh, I will hopefully hear from you on Instagram. Follow me at andrewcoastfitness.com. Or sorry, at, that's my website, and, at andrewcoastfitness on Instagram. But send me a message if we've never talked before. Thank you so much. And we're...